0: Welcome to First Baptist Belton. By God's grace, we aim to be a gospel-centered people that know Jesus intimately, serve Jesus passionately, and share Jesus globally. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoy the following message. Thank you Craig and Megan um, and Parker and Marley for sharing with us. It's hard to imagine the Hammonds family without Chloe. And uh, I think she completed that family in a lot of different ways. And it's awesome to also get to love and care and get to know the children that the uh, Jackson family has been fostering, and they've been bringing here, and many of you have got to teach them in Sunday school and be a part of their life. And, uh, and so, we've all been a part of those two stories, and it's, it's awesome to be here today to be with you and opening God's Word. I want to invite you to open the two places in your Scriptures. Uh, Craig actually mentioned one of them, James chapter 1, verse 27, and mark that spot. And then most of our time this morning, we're going to be in Ruth chapter 2. The Old Testament book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 2. As you've already heard, today's a special day in the life of our church. We celebrate um, or have this emphasis every single year, and it's called One Sunday. It's a day where we as a church, we as God's people called First Baptist Belton, gather together to focus on adoption, foster care, the least of these. We intentionally make this a focus every single year because, and I want you to get this. This is not a new thing for us, but I want you to hear this. We do this because one of the primary ways that God demonstrates His character and His love is through the church. It's, it's through you and me that we get to be involved in things like foster care and adoption, And that's one way that God demonstrates His beauty and His character and His love. And we desire to see a culture of caring for the fatherless, the widow, the homeless, the downtrodden in our community and church. Over the last eight weeks, we've actually been looking at our discipleship pathway. Four specific words, connect, grow, do you remember the other two? Okay, three of you, that's great. All right. Come on. Wake up. Y'all are still in a turkey coma. Let's go. Wake up. All right. Serve. And then what's the last one? Multiply. Multiply. Right? Connect, grow, serve, multiply. Specifically, as we think about orphans, we think about the widow, we think about foster care, we think about the downtrodden. One of those words in our discipleship pathway is grow, and we focus specifically on growing in love for others. Growing in love for others. Pastor Logan, he, he said last week that this series, and he pointed to the four words on the, on the, on the banner that was standing, sitting on the stage. He said, this cannot just be a series, and then all of a sudden we just forget it. it, it like it's over. These can't just be four words that we focus on for eight weeks. These are going to be four words that we immerse ourselves in. And so, growing in love for others, you and I. If we follow Jesus, what we're talking about this morning cannot be ignored. It can't be ignored. It's it's not ignored through Scripture. God has a place, a special place in His heart for widows and orphans. This is important to God, it should be important to His people. God has always been concerned with the fatherless and the widow. You can write these verses down. We're not going to read them specifically, but all through the Scripture, we see God's heart for the fatherless and the widow. Exodus twenty-two, twenty-two, it says you should not afflict any widow or fatherless child. Deuteronomy 14, 28 through 29, every third year demanded this special tithe to be collected from every single Jew for the purpose to care for the orphan and the widows. Deuteronomy 24, 17 through 22, it had this, basically there was this profit-sharing plan for orphans and widows to care for them through the harvesting of the fields. Deuteronomy 27, 19, God demanded justice for the widow and justice for the orphan. He demands justice for them. Why? Psalm 68.5 says this, God is a father of the fatherless and the judge of the widows. He has a special heart for widows and orphans. And we should as well. You keep reading through the Old Testament, Jeremiah 7, 6. If you oppress the so- not the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, and shed not innocent blood in his place, neither walk after other gods to your harm, then I will cause you to dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. In other words, if, if you care for widows, if you care for the orphan correctly, God says I'll bless you. It it, it continues on in Scripture, Acts chapter 6. You probably remember this story. One of the very first things the early church got into in an organizational kind of way was getting food to the widows. First Timothy chapter 5, Paul writes to the church and he says, honor widows, and then he goes on with this lengthy discussion over how to care for them correctly. Well then you come to our text in James chapter 1. Those were just some examples of what's in the Scripture of God's heart for the orphan and the widow. Then you come to James chapter 1, verse 27. He's he's just talked about or just written that we can't just hear the word only. We must be doers of the word. And in verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Religion that God the Father accepts is this, to visit, to care for, to have compassion, to have love for the widow and the orphan. That's a startling statement. Why why does James say this? Pure religion before God the Father is this, to care for the orphan, to visit the widow in their affliction. Pure religion. Genuine religion. In other words, if you're not doing this, you you may not have a pure religion. It would be corrupted. It would be stained. It wouldn't be right. So why is James putting this as one test of genuine faith why does he say this why is this so important when it comes to our faith well first realize this this point is not for uh, some kind of legalistic approach where i cared for an orphan this year check i visited a widow during thanksgiving check no that's not what james is doing here the gospel isn't giving you a checklist. Rather, what this means is that if you have been and are being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and following his word and keeping his commands, you will gradually gravitate. Your heart will well up for others. You can't help it. You will love others, that are love those who are in need, whoever they may be. Religion is not genuine. No matter how many verses you have memorized, no matter how loud you may sing, if your religion doesn't lead you to love and sacrifice for those in need. Your theology means nothing if you don't love others. If it doesn't lead you to love people, then your theology is incorrect. True religion demonstrates love and compassion for people. And as James says specifically to the widow and the orphan, this cannot be ignored. So what I want to do this morning is I want to show you why pure religion serves the fatherless and the widow. Why pure religion serves the fatherless and and the widow. And to do that, we're going to look at Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2. Now I'm going to just kind of give a real quick narrative, if you will, of chapter 1, just to kind of catch you up, so that when we start reading chapter 2, you kind of know what's happening. Okay? I'm not, I'm not going to quote it verse by verse, but just is just kind of what's happening. The book of Ruth opens up with this Israelite guy named Elimelech. He's leaving Bethlehem with his family. He's going to go to Moab because there's a famine in Bethlehem, which is ironic because Bethlehem literally means the house of bread. So this guy Elimelech, he takes his wife Naomi and their two sons, and they go to Moab to try to find bread. Now if you, if you do any research, you read your Bible a little bit, you know that Moab is not that great of a place to raise a family. It's not that great of a place. Moabites, they worship a false god called Kamash. They're violent, they're uncharitable, they constantly provoke Israel. In fact, if you think about Moab, the Moabite people, their sins as a country were so bad that God had said in Deuteronomy 23.3 that no Moabite could enter into the assembly of the Lord down to the tenth generation. I mean, they're corrupt. These are bad folks. But this is exactly where Elimelech and his family live. As you continue to read chapter 1, Elimelech and his sons, they grow up, and the two boys marry two Moabite girls, one Ruth and one Orpah. Now that's bad news. Not only did they move to Moab, but they also, the two sons married Moabite women. These are not the kind of women you want your son to bring home. Throughout the Scriptures, Moabite girls, they tend to be big trouble. They're always causing trouble for Israelite men. In fact, if you read Numbers 25, you've got a bunch of Moabite women seducing a bunch of Israelite men, and they worship their false god, Kamash. And in punishment, God kills 24,000 Israelite men that day. These are not the kind of girls you want to be around. But they married him. Elimelech has two sons and now two daughter-in-laws. Well, further tragedy hits Elimelech and his family. He and his two sons die. So he leaves behind Naomi and these two Moabite daughter-in-laws. And after her husband and two sons are dead. Naomi hears that God has blessed Bethlehem again. They now have food, and she wants to go home. So she and her two Moabite daughter-in-laws set off to return to Bethlehem, but on the way, it dawns on, um, it dawns on her that she really has nothing to offer them. It'd probably be better for them to just go on back to Moab, because if they go back to Bethlehem with her, they're just going to be this destitute people. Despised women in a strange land. So Orpah, she chooses to return back to Moab. Ruth, however, she has this genuine experience, and she says to Naomi, "I want, I know, I'm going to go with you. Your people will be my people. My God will be your God." So when Naomi returns to Bethlehem, everybody wants to know what's been going on with her, where she been, who is she, what's happening. Evidently, Naomi gets pretty tired of this, so she changes her name. Her name was Naomi, which means pleasant. She changed her name to Mara, which means bitter. That's the end of chapter one. So Ruth two opens with Naomi back in Bethlehem, and because they are poor, Ruth, the daughter-in-law, suggests she go to the field to beg for some food. Okay. Now here's what we're going to do. We're going to kind of start and stop a lot here. So Ruth, chapter 2, verse 3. And Ruth the Moabite said to—actually verse 1, sorry. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. Now, a couple things here before we jump into the next verse. First, you, the reader, realize that Elimelech is a relative of theirs, which is a signal to the Jewish audience that this romance is about to be set up. We're about to get set up in this this romance story. Second, there's supposed to be a lot of irony in the phrase, she happened Okay, she happened to go to this specific field. She just so happened to find the field of Boaz. Scholars say that we lose so much reading in this story in the English language because the language here is so dramatic. Ruth, she goes and she just so happened to glean for food on the land of Boaz. Boaz's land. All right? So you the reader, you know that God is sovereignly weaving this story together. She just so happened. Verse 4. And Boaz and behold Boaz. Right? Right? Cue the music. Rocky theme music. And behold, Boaz, right? And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? Oh, yeah, he sees, right? Right? Whose young woman is this? Boaz now enters the story, the knight in shining armor, right? His name means strength. This is a man's man. And Boaz, he sees, he asks this young man that's working with him, who's that girl? Who's that girl? Now, that's Hebrew. Just so you know, I did a lot of study, and that's Hebrew for, whoo, check her out. All right? Yeah. No, no, literally, this this is the question. If you read through the book of Ruth, this is the question for the whole book. Whose woman is this? Who does she belong to? Is she a Moabite, a stranger, damaged goods, a homeless girl? Who is she? Does she belong to the trash heap? Where's she from? Who is this girl? And clearly, there's something that Boaz finds attractive about her, but that's that's ironic because there's really nothing he should see in her. She's got a bad family background. She's a Moabite, she doesn't seem to have a father, she's got a tough past, she's poor. And now here in chapter two, really when you think about it, she's really not looking her best. She's down on the field trying to find some food. Girls, I don't know if you ever were going out on a date and you thought about looking like that. No, most of the time you spend time in the mirror getting ready, right? Now she's just trying to find some food. Might be down on her hands and knees just just trying to find something that's left over. And Boaz takes a notice of her. She's rummaging on the ground looking for food. And here he is. And he has this different spirit about him. Where others see distortion and ruin, Boaz sees beauty. So he asks, who does she belong to? And they tell him. Now look at verse 8 and 9. Here's the greatest pickup line ever. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you, and when you're thirsty? Go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Now when I was going after Christy a long time ago, at West Texas A&M University, walking the sidewalk, checking her out in the cafeteria, right? I did not think about, hey girl, come to my field, right? Come 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 get your food on my field. Hey, and by the way, Christy, when you're thirsty, just tell my servants, and they'll get you something. Right? What a, what a great pickup line. This is awesome. It's a strange pickup line, but evidently it works. He says, and I want you to see the significance here, because he says to her, "Stay on this field and eat." You're safe here. You're safe. And when you're thirsty, you are not a servant. We'll actually serve you. So not only is he showing interest in her, he's showing her honor. He's honoring her. You might say, well, did it really work? Verse 10, then she fell on her face Bowing to the ground, and she said to them, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? She's in this moment, just think about it. She's in this moment where she's just trying to find some food for her and Naomi. Why should I find favor in your eyes? Verse 14 through 20 And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread, and dip your morsel into the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. I wonder when the last time she felt that. I wonder when the last time a child in foster care where there was adopted sat at a table and felt satisfied. Verse 15, when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an epa of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now, there's a lot that goes into that. And this is is pretty interesting where the romance begins. And and we're not going to get into the full story, but here's the main idea that I want us to get this morning. What we see in Boaz and Ruth is not just some romantic, cool story. The reason it's here in the Bible is because it's a horizontal reflection of a vertical relationship. In other words, let me ask you this, who are are we like in this story? Who Who are you and I like in this story? We can say that Elimelech's family is us, just like Elimelech. We were driven out of the land of blessing because of our disobedience. Just like Elimelech, our sin and rebellion against God brings death. We can also say we're like Ruth. We have been left poor, defiled, disgraced, and starving. Which, which leads me to the first point of the sermon. And If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Here's the first point. We are not Boaz in this story we are Ruth. We are not Boaz in this story. We are Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite woman who had no claim to the promise of God, who had no natural entrance to relationship with God. She was an outsider, an outcast, a foreigner, an alien who, by God's mysterious plan, His sovereign power His amazing grace, this Moabite woman becomes an heir to the covenant promises. I hope you hear that as you you think about this. This is the entire story of redemption in this lady's biography. But it's not just Ruth's story. This is us. This is our story. We have no natural entrance to relationship with God. We're sins and strangers and aliens. We have no right to the covenant promises. Paul says it powerfully in Ephesians. We were without God and without hope in the world. We're Ruth. We are Ruth. The second point that I want you to see is this. So we are not Boaz, we are Ruth. The second point is this, Jesus is the true and greater Boaz. Jesus is the true and greater Boaz. Like Boaz, Jesus has the right to redeem because he took upon himself our flesh, became human, lived in perfect obedience to the will of his Father willingly laid down his life on the cross, sacrificing himself for us. Jesus, desiring to redeem us, not leaving just a little extra barley on the ground for us, but no, he gave up his whole body, sacrificing him whole self on the cross, excruciating torture so that he could be to us the bread of life. If you're you're interested, you can flip over to Ruth chapter four. Look at how it ends, 421. We get into this genealogy, which we all love to read. Solomon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So Boaz and Ruth had a son, his name was Obed. Obed had a son whose name was Jesse, and Jesse has a son, and his name is David. So what we see from the genealogy, if you go to Matthew chapter 1, you see in the genealogy when Jesus Christ was born on this earth, he had the blood of Ruth, a Moabite, secondhand, homeless girl flowing in him. Jesus, he's the greater and truer Boaz. Which leads me to the last point, and our challenge really for today. So we are Ruth, Jesus is the true and greater Boaz, and the last point, God's love for us helps us see others correctly. God's love for us helps us see others correctly. The gospel is is really that you and I are more wicked, and more depraved, and more defiled than we could even imagine. And even though we are more wicked, depraved, and defiled than we could ever dream or imagine, you at the same time, I at the same time, because of what Christ has done to redeem us, because of what Jesus has accomplished. In His birth, His life, His death, and His resurrection, we are more loved and accepted by God than we ever dared to hope. This means something very, very important as we think about growing in our love to others, as we think about the orphan, the foster care, adoption, we think about the widow, we think about the homeless, we think about growing in love for others. And here's why it's important, you and I are not powerful, wealthy, middle-class saviors. We are not Boaz. We are not the savior, we are the saved. In the homeless, the orphan, the prisoner, the abandoned mother, the dropout, I don't see someone that I need to rescue. What I see rather because of the gospel is I see myself. That I was the orphan, I was the fatherless, I was the widow, I was the dropout, I was the abandoned, I was Ruth. And the same Jesus who loved me and sought me and willingly gave his life for me when I was a stranger can save them as well. I am not their savior, I am their equal. And I want just to get this very clearly as we think about all of this on one Sunday. This is very important for us to grasp. We are not the answer for the adoption problem. I'm sure Logan and Tracy, when we they asked me to preach, were not thinking I would say that. You and I are not the answer to the, for the adoption problem, the homeless problem, the prisoner problem, the widow problem. We are not the answer. The cross is. The gospel is the answer. And having experienced the redemption of Christ, you and I, we should, we, we can't help but love others and have compassion for others and care for others. It should lead us to love and care for the widow and the orphan. And this, brothers and sisters, is why James says, pure religion that God the Father accepts is this, to visit the widow and the orphan in their affliction, to care for them, to have compassion for them. Because when you have experienced the gospel, you have a heart that goes after the fatherless, that goes after the widow, because you understand that you were the fatherless, that you were the widow. We sing a song, you probably remember these lyrics, and sung them many times. He took my sin and my sorrow, and he made them his very own. He bore my burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. Jesus' love for us is marvelous, and our love for others should be marvelous too. So, First Baptist Belton, I want us to dream about showing this kind of love in extravagant ways. Every single one of us in here. Every single one of us. I love what Russell Moore says. He says this, think of how revolutionary it is for a Christian to adopt a young boy with a cleft palate from a region of India where most people see him as defective. Think of how odd it must seem to American secularists to see Christians adopting a baby whose body trembles with an addiction to the cocaine her mother sent through her bloodstream before birth. Think of the kind of credibility, he writes, that such action lends to the proclamation of our gospel. What if we as Christians were known once again as the people who take in orphans and make of them beloved sons and daughters? So as we wrap up, I just want to land it here with some information for you, to help you understand the situation. And again, this is one we cannot ignore. At the end of October of this year, so about a month ago, there were 762 children in foster care in Bell County. And sixty-two. Out of those 762 children in foster care in Bell County, 101 of them are awaiting adoption right now. I want you to take just a brief moment and look around the room. Look around the room. How many people are in this room? More than need to be adopted. 101 awaiting adoption, they're ready for parents to take them in. So my question for us as we read this, as we grapple with this, why can't the evangelical churches in Bell County, why can't First Baptist Belton, which we have, you've heard the stories, you know a lot of people within this church, I learned of one this morning that was a part of adoption. But why can't we take care of this, these kids? This is exactly what James 1.27 means. For us to take care of them, for us to provide for them. Why can't we go and we say, we'll take them. We'll take them. And I know your thoughts. You're like, well, it's not that easy. I understand it's not that easy, but I'm talking about here. Where's our heart for this? That we've been rescued and redeemed when we were fatherless and widow and orphan and homeless and a dropout. Why can't we go and extend the same kind of grace and love and mercy to those that are in need? 101, 762 in foster care. I don't want to get into political jargon, but we, we hearken, which we should, pro-life. Our Sunday school lesson today is about life being made in the image of God. We, we scream that from the mountaintops, pro-life. This is pro-life. These are lives. We can't ignore this problem. This is being pro-life, is being engaged and doing what we can to care for the orphan and the widow and the downtrodden. I was doing a little research, and if we want to impact the five biggest areas of need, the five biggest areas of need in in our nation, we could adopt a child who will otherwise grow up in a fatherless environment. And when you do your research, fatherless is the number one contributor to homelessness, poverty, unwed pregnancy, crime, and suicide. We could impact all five areas by just getting involved in one. So I want to be clear. All of us can be involved in this in some way. All of us. God has a heart for the orphan and the widow. And as God's children, as the people of First Baptist Belton, my prayer is that our families, our singles, our older couples, all of us would pray and seek ways to be involved in this. And as we grow in love for others, I'm praying that God would raise up an army of families from right within this room that would go And not just take in a child, but to take in that child so that they could know Jesus. That's our mission. That's why we celebrate. That's why we emphasize one Sunday. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank You for who You are. I thank You, God, for the redemption that we have in Your Son, Jesus. I thank you that in my time of just studying scripture, I see your heart for the fatherless and the widow, for the downtrodden, for the hurting. But God, I don't see myself as the one that can rescue. You're the only one that can do it, but you do it through us, and so God, I pray that you would raise up in this church as you already have been doing for years, but God, that you would raise up more. That would answer the call to fostering. That would answer the call to adopting. And God, I'm not gonna stand up here and act as if it's it's easy. Because I know it's not. Lord, adoption's within my own family, and I know it's not easy. I have friends that have adopted and fostered, and I know it's not easy. But God, you didn't call us to live easy. You've called us to lay down our lives for others, just like you have. And so, God, would you raise us up to embrace the gospel in our own lives, and to live it out. And for some of us, it may be in this way. It's in your wonderful name we pray. Amen. If you would like more information, please visit fbbelton.org or call our church office at 254-939-0705. We are located at 506 North Main Street. We hope to see you soon.